0: Welcome to the Fuck Saving Face podcast. I'm your host, Judy Tsui, and together we'll explore mental and emotional health for Asian Americans, especially breaking through any taboo topics. Life may not always be pretty, but it is indeed beautiful. Let's make your story beautiful today. For this week, I'm super excited because we will be covering the heated topic of tiger parenting and tiger mothering. And on Wednesday, we'll interview Iris Chen, the author of Untigering, which is a fabulous book. I can't wait to dive into it. And on Friday, we'll have a mindfulness practice that helps to embark on those forgiveness practices, especially if you were raised with tiger parents like I was. But before I dive into today's episode, there's been a lot that's been happening in the world in terms of hate crimes against Asian Americans, and I wanted to take a moment to address it. And really share where I'm coming from, what this podcast is all about, so that you know what lane we're in when we're here. One of the things I learned about throughout my journey into spirituality, which I've been deepening while researching and writing my book about Tibetan rights, is that you can't fight hate with more hate. I feel unsorted feelings about the recent violence in Atlanta, which took the lives of six Asian women, and I fully support all the channels, influencers, writers, spearheading the hashtag Stop Asian Hate movement. But that's not my lane. I am not a political activist. I'm a person who believes that if we could all do our best to heal ourselves when it comes to mental and emotional and even spiritual health and to support one another in these efforts, then it can create a beneficial legacy impact for generations. Hurt people hurt people. That man who committed the crimes said that he had a sexual addiction and was trying to eliminate his temptation. He was suffering severe mental and emotional health problems. And if you've watched Trevor Noah recently on Instagram, you can hear what he says about the intersection between mental health and racism. I don't know how to fix the world, but I do know how vital it is to remove the guilt and shame in asking for the right kind of help. Maybe I am naive, maybe I don't know enough, but this is what I believe I can help with. I recently opened up to my partner after a somewhat taxing trip back to my parents' house of why I advocate so much for mental and emotional wellness. Because people who don't ask for help, who try to keep it all together, who try to look okay on the outside, reach a breaking point. And when they do, the fallout can be immense or tragic. We are all human. Being human is not easy. But we, in being human, we also have a phenomenal capacity to heal, to thrive, to help others, even in the most dire of circumstances. I remember seeing the Dalai Lama in person in LA and feeling the healing power he exuded. Yet, he is ruling in exile. His people are being prosecuted. He chose a boy over 20 years ago to be his second-in-command, who he believed to also be a reincarnated Lama, only to have the boy disappear, and to this day, no one knows if he is still alive. Still, the Dalai Lama continues to advocate for compassion, forgiveness, tolerance, loving-kindness. We can never obtain peace in the outer world until we make peace with ourselves, he says, and be kind whenever possible. It is always possible. So now we're going to dive into this week's personal essay. As a reminder, every Monday, I share a personal essay similar to what you would see on the articles that I've published on blogs or on social media. And every Wednesday features an interview with someone who's really working in the world to break through taboos for Asian Americans. And every Friday, I offer a mindfulness practice so that we can bring it all together and have an opportunity to come home to ourselves. Without further ado, here's this week's essay, The Parentified Child. This past weekend, I went to see my parents. I brought my daughter. And I grieved once again that the family dynamic I wish I had isn't quite what it is in real life. When I was pregnant and suffered from hyperemesis gravidarum, where I was nauseated and vomiting almost round the clock for the duration of my pregnancy, my mother came out to visit me while I was living in Kalihiwai on Kauai. In my tiny granny flat, on a vast property with acres of fruit trees and lush landscape lawn, I curled into a bed unable to move. If I wasn't rushing to the bathroom to throw up, I was spinning with dizziness or wincing in pain from a migraine. When I called my mother to tell her I was pregnant, I prefaced it by saying, I'm about to tell you some news, and I want you to either be supportive or not say anything at all. Because I knew. I knew how she might react. I knew that my choosing to get pregnant out of wedlock with a man she didn't even know I was dating were all factors in a formula for judgment. How, she said. I'm pregnant, I said. I knew it, she said. Whatever our family is, we are also intuitive, deeply intertwined, linked in energy or astrology or whatever the universe mapped out for our arrival here. She bought a ticket to fly out. I did not know how sick I would become and how I had also become so non-functional that if there wasn't someone else around helping to take care of me, I probably would have died. I did not have the energy to cook for myself, much less eat. And my newly found boyfriend, hyphen future husband, had booked a ticket to Thailand before we met which I insisted he go to because it was probably the last hurrah he'd get for a while. So my mother came. She cooked for me. She took out the trash. She waited in the living room while I lay incapacitated in bed. I tried every now and again to move from hugging the toilet to sit near her, but for the most part, her trip was simply to ensure I survive. It was the most nurturing I had ever felt her being toward me, me with this new life within. Before that, When I used to suffer from migraines all the time in junior high, she would look at me as though I were making it up. Or when I caught pneumonia at 27 and it was Thanksgiving, my brothers came to pick me up to go to my uncle's house with my mother sitting in the back seat. I was so sick that I curled up in the small sedan, yet made sure not to make physical contact with her because I knew that's not what we did as a family. Later, after my daughter was born, my mother came back out to help cuo the traditional 30 days postpartum care that's common in Taiwan and much of Asia. After my daughter arrived in this world, I thought we would continue the newfound bond that I felt when I was pregnant, but suddenly, things were even more strained. I could not fathom that, after experiencing for myself what it was like to have an infant, that I would do to her the things that she had done to me. My father called, what are you doing? he asked in reprimand. Your mother called me and said that you're being mean to her or you're not appreciating her. She flew all the way out there for you. How could I use the words to tell him the new profound truths I had discovered? In recent years, I've learned the term parentified child to describe the process of role reversal, where a child has to act as a parent to their own parent or siblings or become the referee in their parents' arguments. When a child is forced to take on the role of an adult, when caregivers aren't able to fully show up for themselves, kids get put into developmentally inappropriate situations. This was my whole childhood. And this past weekend, as I came home with my own child, hoping for moments of bonding or practicing Mandarin with my daughter's grandparents, I found that she was up in the treehouse my father had built for her, construction being his business all of his life, by herself. I climbed up there. I stared into the ether. I tried to breathe through the fact that the American ideals I saw in television sitcoms where the families were like Growing Pains or Family Ties or Small Wonder really were fiction I bought into. There is a reason Asian kids don't show up in shows like that. Because getting C's wasn't acceptable like Mike Siever did, and for the most part, a lot of us didn't have the touchy-feely, heart-swelling crescendo moments of conflict, denouement, resolution. We didn't have resolution. We had stonewalling silence. When I came back inside, because my daughter asked for Gong Gong, my father was heatedly talking to my sister. I look at Dagugu and the way her body is, and she's just seven years older than me. I can still move, I can still run, I want to enjoy my life, my father said. I want to buy that RV. You can talk to your mom about it, make her understand. My sister sighed, exasperated. Fine, she said. I began to feel the tension arise in my body, the understanding that yet again, my father may not be making the most sound financial decisions. For most of my life, my parents were tens, if not even hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, but then again, I never figured out big numbers in Mandarin, so maybe my whole interpretation was wrong. Yingying, my father looked at me, I want to get an RV, you should talk to your mother about it, tell her it's a good idea. Now I sighed. Wilder wants to see you in the treehouse, I told him. Let me get the brochure to show you. He brought it back to me, put it on the dining room table, this table that I tried to get our family to do regular Sunday dinners at when I was still trying to Americanize us after my moving back from living abroad. He pointed to the RV model he liked best. I looked down at the diagram with its architectural rendering, so similar to the drawings he used to have in rolled up white pieces of paper in the office in the house. Reams and reams of architectural drawings. I loved seeing his handwriting. I loved seeing him at work. His handwriting is so beautiful in English and so masterful in Chinese calligraphy. My parents are older. They didn't start having children into their 30s, so now they're in their 70s. Knowing this and knowing my skill set of interviewing people to capture their stories, I asked my father to sit down with me after dinner one night so that I could ask this reserved man a few questions. He told me about how when he was younger, he was smart. Their family was poor. They would seek those large palm sized snails in Taiwan and scoop out the meat from the shell to feed their animals. One day in the crazy summer heat under the blazing sun, he and his friend sought shade and hid behind an army jeep as they did their scooping. The military men entered the jeep, didn't know these kids were there, backed over my father as his friend jumped out of the way. His friend screamed. The soldier in the passenger seat looked back and saw what happened. He yelled to the driver. The driver pulled forward and my father rolled out from under the jeep into a ditch. At this time, they didn't know much about brain trauma or injury. But after the accident, he wasn't the same. My father had a hard time studying. My grandmother, this woman who was so loving to me growing up, beat my father regularly thinking he was being lazy. In school, he became known as stupid. He internalized this. And then a teacher saw his calligraphy skills, saw his potential, and helped him. He taught him how to make his writing art. He taught him how to study. He believed in him. My father became a good student again. He even aced the exam to get into the best high school in town, but his reputation had become such that when another mother in the neighborhood saw him walking around with a backpack that had a label of this top school, she berated him. How could you do that? How could you wear that bag like you belong? Is that your older brother's? No, it's mine, he said. For my wedding, my father wrote a traditional scroll, complete with a four-squared red imprint of his name. He wrote a Bible verse because in my 20s, my mother had converted to Christianity. He wrote this beautiful piece of art that traveled with us from Kauai to our camper van to Austin, Texas. And my daughter, in her two-year-old exploratory nature, ripped it all up into shreds in my bedroom that I no longer shared with my husband. I felt it was a premonition. Wilder wants to see you in the treehouse, I reiterated. My father walked away. I looked down at the RV that he wanted to buy. Then again. I stared into the ether. There is a memory I have of my father that I can never get out of my mind. He's leaning his back against the wall, crouched in the hallway. He had had enough. The debt compiling had become enough. The fighting with my mother had become enough. The everything about being a man, an Asian immigrant in America, of being a human had become enough, and so he began to cry. Outwardly sobbing, me standing a few feet away, he tried to talk to me about something I can't remember. I couldn't help him, and in that moment, I felt pity, compassion, and true horror at this expression of emotion from a person I had wished could provide safety. I did not know what to do except what I always did, which was to take my 12-year-old self and offer advice or listen or become the parent that he so desperately needed then as well. I have since learned from the book, The Whole Brain Child, that our brains aren't yet fully developed until we're well into our 20s that our higher brain, the executive functioning, and our lower brain, the primal responses, aren't aligned in ways that allow for truly rational thought and reasoning. My physical self, my mind, wasn't prepared for this bigness. Perhaps this is why I don't know how to play with my young daughter. I never got the chance. I was a parentified child. Play was seen as lazy. Play was seen as useless. Play was non-essential. Except that it's not. Animals and nature play. It's how we process, how we release stress, how we tap into creativity. It's vital for our thriving. If you haven't yet done so today, please do something that brings your heart delight. Find your play. Make it up to yourself. I wanted to have compassion for my father. I wanted to understand where my parents were coming from. As my mother said to me while we were visiting this past weekend, why aren't you eating? Are you trying to lose weight again? Knowing full well that I had entered into an intensive outpatient program for an eating disorder in my mid 20s, I wanted to spiritually bypass everything with my yoga and mindfulness training, but I knew that in order to get there, I had to feel these feelings of anger and frustration and resentment. My father started to make Baozi in the extra kitchen he made specifically for this new hobby. As amazing as the houses and restaurants and properties my father has built in his 50 plus years as an architect and contractor, their house in Los Angeles has always looked like a hodgepodge of afterthought. I have fallen in gaps on the floor because our house was the last house he built. I'm going to go, I told him, barely an hour after our visit. Really? I'm getting these buns ready for you, my father said. I felt torn. This was his way of expressing love. He did not have the words, the skills, the permission to say things I know he feels, so making 包子, 饺子, 酒菜盒子, all of these are his way of showing me that I matter. How long is it going to take? I asked, ungrateful. 30 minutes? With my father, it is never 30 minutes. It is an hour at best. I sighed again. I walked away, and he kept rolling the dough, kneading it with his hands. Unexpectedly, my younger brother and his wife came home. I didn't think we would see them. I made polite conversation, then Wilder came up to me. Is Gong making baozi, she asked. Yes, I said. Would you like to go help him? Of course, she said enthusiastically, her six-year-old frame running in his direction. I kept talking to my brother, aiming for normalcy. A short while later, my daughter ran up to me to show me the incredible design she had created thanks to her grandfather's mentoring. I took a photo with my phone. I stayed. I stayed until the buns were steamed. I stayed until my mother filled a box of food frozen and fresh for me to take home to San Diego. I stayed until I realized that what I always say is true. Life may not always be pretty, but it is indeed beautiful. And that in my own way, I can keep writing a story so that my daughter can have the kind of love, the kind of affection, the kind of connection I crave so deeply as a child. Once in my 20s, I took my parents to dinner, a rare occasion where it was just me and them, and I asked them about their childhood. I wanted to know if they actually fled China like they claimed, or if it was a planned, purposeful exit to move to Taiwan. We fled, they said. We fled with what we had. My father was three. My mother was one. When I was in high school, I was helping to clean out my parents' house when I climbed over the washing machine. There, in the cabinet, on a shelf, was a handwritten letter in Mandarin. Because I don't read Mandarin fluently, and let's be honest, I can identify maybe enough characters to complete a toddler's storybook, I handed the letter to my mother. She opened it began to read and immediately began to weep. It was a letter from a grandfather I never met who also never met his younger daughter. In elementary school, when I was asked to do a family tree, I asked my father to tell me about our family. It was one of the rare times he was at home at night early enough for me to converse with him. He told me about my mother's family, how her father was fairly high up in Chiang Kai-shek's army, how he helped his daughter and pregnant wife flee to Taiwan, then return to China to rescue his men. Hiding with his in-laws, the Communists came to their door beat his father-in-law, and told him that if my mother's father didn't turn himself in, they would come back to kill him. My mother's father, my grandfather, couldn't let that happen, so he turned himself in, and no one knows what happened to him. That letter, the one that I found, was a letter from my mother's father to my mother's mother. He was telling her that he knew times would be tough for her because of what would inevitably ensue. He told her to take good care, but if she ever found herself in dire straits, to give away the younger child because he had never met her before, to keep the older child, his daughter, his heart, the one they named Lan Tianhui, Blue Sky, Grace. As I write this story, I actually don't know what my grandfather on my mother's side has ever looked like. I have never seen a picture of him. I don't even actually know his name. How could I not even know his name? Things like this are standard when you don't grow up living in the country with the same mother tongue as your parents, when your parents have left their home country, when your parents are immigrants who have experienced trauma and loss. Recently, my mother sent an email to myself and my siblings. She had asked a friend to translate a letter from her father into English so that we could understand it. I do not know if it is the same letter that I found, but here is a portion of it told by my mother. My mother only mentioned my father twice before. She told me that my father was still living in mainland China, but actually he'd already passed away. She kept the sadness to herself to give me a whole beautiful picture, but I knew there was a missing piece. When I turned 60, I became Christian. I reread those letters carefully. From these letters, I know that my father was Christian too, so I'll fill up the missing piece. He wrote, I prayed silently with hope that my children would understand each other encouraged each other to live happily. When the situation in China got worse, he comforted my mother, take care of yourself, be strong and patient, God will bless us, maybe we will see each other very soon. But they never did. Two years later, my aunt in Hong Kong wrote a letter to my mother. She said that my father had gotten sick and passed away. Communication had resumed, but we found out that my father was actually killed in the war between the communists and the Kuomintang. I understand they didn't know what they were doing. I do not hate them. I firmly believe that when my father said we will see each other again, he knew that this was the road to the internal life. I want to thank my father for naming me Tianhui, God's grace. I am a treasure of God and his divine plan, who has been polished through the suffering of life's struggles. I'm writing this article to commemorate my father who is now in heaven. When I learn of these experiences as an adult, I can have compassion and empathy for why my parents are the way they are, and yet there are still parts of me, no matter my age, that wishes I could have had the life I am trying to give my daughter, and now, when things still don't sink up, I have to breathe. I have to remind myself of all of the other blessings that have come from my experiences, that I am able to read a room because of how I had to navigate the potential bombs that would explode in my household between my parents or towards me, how I am able to shapeshift in any circumstance to create a meaningful connection, and that because of my running away, I actually ran toward a life I have loved creating. Recently, my daughter asked me to sit on the white soft rug of my room, me unsure of as to why, only to look at her, only to have her look at me, both of us cross-legged, mirroring one another. Mom, I'm so grateful for you. You do so much for me. I know you work so hard for me. I wonder how a tiny little human could love me like this. I wonder how a tiny little human could have captured my heart. I wonder how such love like this can exist. This is all of it. This is a rich life. This is being human. This week, we'll dive more into parenting, especially tiger parenting, and how to untiger yourself if you experienced yourself doing that with your own children, or if your parents did that with you, with author Iris Chen. I'm so excited, and stay tuned. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to share it with a friend, leave a review so other people can find it. Or go to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash FCK, and support our endeavors. You can also go to our website, www.fucksavingface.com, that's FCK, and find out more of what we're up to.